welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. And welcome to The Common Bridge. This is our 49th episode, and as we inch closer and closer to that half-century mark, what better time than now to look back at other halves, in particular the first half of the year 2020, which by any yardstick uh, has been amazing in uh, almost biblical standards. Rich, it's great to have you. I'm sorry we're not in the studio again. We haven't been in the studio together in almost four months now, so... We do this using phone technology and such, but it seems to work. Rich, tell us that it's going to be all right. (laughs) I mean, just give us your perspective on the first six months of 2020. Well, great, Brian. And look, even for a chronically optimistic person like myself, this has been very uh, difficult. Uh, We've had to deal with things that, you know, other generations have had to deal with, but the intensity and the compressed timeline and the amplification through our 24-hour news cycle, I think, has really stressed people out. You know, look, we still are plagued by the same two problems. We have a government that's been confiscated by two major parties, neither of whom can work on the issues of the day. Last Thursday, or excuse me, last Wednesday, the Democrats shut down a police reform bill because they thought it might give the Republicans a win. It's, it's nuts. And it's happened the other way, too. I should be clear about that. And then we have a reporting process that's massively corrupted. There's a story narrative first and then fit selected facts to support that narrative and then ignore or you know twist others. If you look, if you remember at the beginning of this year, um, the stock markets were flying along. Unemployment was uh, at record lows. Uh, Across all sectors of the economy, wages were rising. They were rising faster in lower incomes that all categories by race, by gender, by income level were going up. Things looked really, really good at that point. In playing in the background, we had the impeachment narrative that was winding to uh, its uh, inevitable conclusion. Uh, And of course, at the beginning of the year, the articles of impeachment had not yet been delivered to the Senate by Speaker Pelosi. Those were dispatched uh, fairly quickly. And, you know, we're still looking for the whistleblower, if such a human being actually exists. But that was us at the beginning of the year. Just January. And just January. That's Jan- January. And then as the rising number of cases of COVID-19 caused us to pivot and you know, like any crisis, there were things that were done well. There were things that were, in hindsight, not done well as we tried to battle this with the best information uh, that we had at the time. And, you know, we did flatten the curve. And it came, that curve flattening came at a price of more mental health cases, suicides, addictions, domestic violence, uh, as well as devastation through the economy. Now, on the list of things that were done wrong, probably top of the list was the five states that discharged elderly people into COVID-infected nursing homes. That 
drove a substantial part of the death rate that we dealt with and, and will continue to deal with. On the upside, both parties came together to get relief to American people. And in contrast to the great financial crisis where that liquefied the banks on a selective basis, there was more uh, liquefaction for the households. So 2007, 8, 9, a person would lose their job. They weren't able to make their mortgage or rent payment. Their credit rating would suffer and they'd lose their home. And there were a lot of families that had to restart after that. And now that person may have lost their job, but because of the enhanced unemployment, the payroll protection program, and the stimulus checks, they could still make their rent or their mortgage payment. So their credit ratings remain intact and they still have their home. So the restart, while it's going to you know probably go in fits and starts, that at least we haven't wiped out a lot of households. So Rich, what are some of the other things we haven't dealt with then? So the other things that we haven't dealt with though are things like infrastructure. Okay. And that we had dams literally burst. And I was surprised to learn that both the owners of the dams and the state government were suing each other about the management of those dams. In fact, I was frankly surprised that the dams were privately owned, which doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, but but they were. And the ideas that have been bounced around at federal and state levels about roads, bridges, uh, information systems, and the like have remained completely unaddressed. You know, we, we have today, you know, as we came out of the pandemic crisis, now we have a economic situation that we need to try to get restarted. And of course, as these things go, we just don't know enough about the contours of this disease. So when the second wave hits and it spikes again, which it sort of is doing right now, do you see them shutting the economy down again or do you see them handling this any differently? Uh, Yes, I do see them uh, handling things differently. And the big part about it is that we know what the metrics are that we need to manage to. And that is around our ability to care for people that are stricken with the virus. So I think we need to be watching um, hospital capacity, so it's beds. Um, We need to be monitoring our personnel, which we, of course, exhausted the people on the front lines and exposed many of them to uh, infection. Are we adequately supplied with personal protection equipment? If those things are in place based on the spread of the disease that we're sure to get, then it'll be managed much better this time around. Uh, We've also learned uh, since the first time that the disease likes to attack elderly and vulnerable people, and that the answer to that is to not uh, let that infection get into uh, nursing homes and the like. And we've learned that the ventilators are not a particularly good therapy in that four out of five people put on the ventilators die. And the reason that they go on the vents is that their blood oxygen level reflects somebody that is crashing, even though they're alert and speaking. I I actually spoke to a uh, respiratory therapist at one of the big university hospitals on the front lines that said, yeah, none of the data correlated, but they had to really kind of break protocol and not put people on vents, and they had a much better outcome. So... 
I do think we'll manage it better, but we'll probably still be plagued by people trying to build an agenda off of it. Let me point out a couple things that if I've talked to people, there's alarming and going, look, the total number of cases is going up. And I said, look, it's a total. It can't go any other direction. <laughs> Interesting thing about those increasing numbers, right? Okay. It's like, it's a, <laughs> it can't go, it's the total. It can't go down and it can't go sideways. It's going to go up. <laughs> and then I've seen entire articles about uh, hospitals are at capacity that name no hospitals and don't have a single number in the entire article. No numbers at all. And to manage anything, you have to know what you're managing and you have to be able to quantify it. And had we a more competent leadership at the federal level, it would be a good crisis manager, which Donald Trump is not, um, saying, here's where we're at you know, across the country in terms of infections, how many symptomatic infections, how many hospitalizations, here's our capacity for them, here's an area that it looks like we could be under strain. And we could get that at, at the state level, but we don't. And we could get it at the local level, which we don't. Well, yeah, Rich, I think if we all agree that if we could get news that everybody could trust, that might be a different story. It's no secret that CNN, MSNBC, and Fox are really just TV shows, uh, more for entertainment um, and uh, opinion persuasion than real news. Well, maybe that would help things out as well. Precisely. And I've been through a number of economic recessions, and the news articles and the news outlets were reporting key factors. What's the interest rate today? What's the unemployment rate today? Those kind of business briefings, you know, net it for me. Where do we stand? What are we doing about it? But we have this hysteria mongering reporting mechanism that wants to take each of those numbers and write a story spun one way. And if the numbers don't support it, just knock the numbers out. Exactly. So anyway, I, I, I would like to get us into a more adult conversation about that. And look, Brian, no discussion of 2020 is complete without the tragic death of George Floyd. I don't think I have anything to add about the circumstances around his death, but there are things that are, remain unaddressed. By way of example, within days of Mr. Floyd's death, there was a, a white man that had a gas mask on, was going and breaking windows in Minneapolis at AutoZone and, and other of the businesses. There was a brief time where it was purported that this person worked for either the St. Paul police or one of the other cities, both of which said, no, this, we don't know who this person is. It doesn't work for us. I haven't heard a thing about this since that time. And I'm hard pressed to believe that someone doesn't know who that is and why that person would be stoking violence the way they did. Well, I'd say it drives the narrative, sells advertising, and probably makes great TV, right? It, but it's off TV. That's the thing. Where is the story? Because to me, that's important. Look, I, I think that we can understand a spontaneous eruption of frustration that 
might lead to uh, property damage, roads blocked, arson, and such. If people feel like they're being persecuted and finally enough's enough, I think that while I would not condone it, I think that is very understandable that someone could react like that. I don't believe that we should ignore people that are using these kinds of tragedies in an opportunistic or in a planful way. And this is an unaddressed aspect of all that's transpired in the last several weeks in our cities of all sizes and uh, you know, indeed across the world, that we need to get to the bottom of who is doing what, what is the difference between a peaceful protest and a planned violence and anarchy, because it's all out there in some measure. Well, Rich, as you and I had spoken about in a previous episode, and I think it was even maybe last week, uh, you had pointed out that, as you said, the protests are valid and you can see the spontaneous um, reaction to some of this stuff. But what bothered you is that on the very next day, and sometimes the same day, protests around the world would feature the exact same talking points, the exact signs, uh, with the exact font, uh, protesters with the exact same outfits on. And it makes you take pause and wonder if this is not a global effort with some sort of coordination on the on the backside. You know, same tactics, same weaponry. And in New York, and this uh, did get reported, it's being muted somewhat now, but two lawyers were caught with Molotov cocktails. They torched a police car and they had Molotov cocktail supplies in their car and they were going to distribute them. And in probably one of the more outrageous pieces of reporting that I've seen, and I've seen a lot of outrageous reporting, CNN, the headline was something to the effect that how did two lawyers find themselves in this situation? It's like, you don't just wake up one day and go, oh no, the pipe burst. Uh, gosh, I never saw that cancer coming. Or, you know, my company got sold. No, you made Molotov cocktails and you went into Manhattan and you torched a police car. Exactly. Nothing spontaneous about that. You had to go get those supplies and be ready for a confrontation after that. Oh, it's, it's a lot. And, you know, look, we all know that the most effective use of Molotov cocktails, of course, were the Finns, and particularly the Finns from Lapland, who beat up the Russians for several years. <laughs> well done for backing that into the story, Rich. Uh, wave that Finnish flag. Indeed, well you know. <laughs> that was just masterfully done. You know, look, we remain a country capable of doing incredible things, yet we are stuck not being able to deal with our roads, our bridges, our school systems, our equal access to higher education, uh, to discussions about equal treatment under the law, to, you know, and that's from a question still surrounding conduct at the level of the president uh, down to the patrol officer on the street um, with citizens of uh, different races. And we are capable of addressing those things in a methodical way. But if I have to recap 2020, we've moved away from them. And if 
anything should be able to bring us together, it would be a pandemic. But I'm sure you were astonished, as I was, that certain groups of people in the street were immune from coronavirus infection, uh, but other people were sure to be super spreaders for doing essentially the same thing. Yeah, that was sort of interesting, wasn't it? There was sort of a, a tacit approval of all of the demonstrations in the streets, even joining in, spray painting the streets, murals, rioting. And then within a few days after that, there was a rally in uh, Oklahoma. Um, Trump had a rally, and that was seen as probably the most dangerous thing we could be doing during this spike in this uh, corona saga. Yeah, well, I mean, you could make the argument there that one was indoors and one was outdoors, and one was masked and one wasn't masked. But again, what some things don't change, like you know, there was the president concerned again about size. I mean, geez, oh, peace. We should be able to do better <laughs> All than right. that. All right. So let's recap something. And then I got to ask you a question on top of it. So it's been since just January, six months, we've had impeachment, primaries, COVID-19, police brutality, turned into protests, turned into riots, turned into tearing down statues and painting streets and starting own little kingdoms within cities and such. And now we're back to COVID again. Just taking a look at this, I got to ask you, if this would have happened two years ago and this wouldn't have been an election year, do you think it all would have gone down the same way? Well, I'd like to be like the Congress, and I reserve the right to revise and amend my remarks at a future time. (laughs) Great preamble. All right. So I've thought about that, and here's the troubling thing to me. Elections have been about accountability, where the incumbents have to go back to the electorate and say, we promised you we were going to do A, B, and C, and we're here to report, here's what we've done, and here's what we would like to do in a next term. And the challenging party or parties would need to come in and say, we've observed what's occurred. And this is the alternative policy and approach and priorities that we're offering. And what we have done, in effect, is let the Republicans and the Democrats and the reporting sources off the hook by not asking them about the key policy matters and let them distract us into this race to the bottom with the heads of both tickets being wholly unqualified for the job as it will exist in January 2021. And we're being distracted about peripheral matters that have no bearing. That, to me, is the troubling part of where we sit in history. Well, I know this is a loaded question, but where does the media sit in all of this? No, here's a better one. I feel better about asking asking you this. How has the media failed us on this? Our mainstream media, as some people coined it, uh, reporting outlets or sources, as I coin it, today they are incented to mute both President Donald Trump and Vice President and presumed nominee Joe Biden. You know, Trump, they desperately want to mute because between the crazy things he says, he actually says some reasonable things. And uh, 
you know, Biden, they want to mute because, well, frankly, there's a reason they are keeping him in the basement. All right, let's shift gears just for a bit. How do you think we turn this around? Or a better question would be, how is this justified? And when I say this, I mean the the protests they get, but the violence, the destruction of public property. Uh, How is that justified? Is it a policing issue? Is everybody upset with the police? I mean, how does that work out? Um, I don't think there's any dispute that Americans want to have even-handed policing, and we do not want to be frightening or incarcerating people because of the color of their skin or their gender or anything. But when you look at what's happened in Madison, Wisconsin in recent days, that the National Guard had to come out to protect state properties, that there were statues that were torn down and fires set. And the thing is, these are statues that are there to honor advocates of women's rights and that put an abolitionist, people that put their lives on the line to fight slavery. When you take down those monuments, like a man by the name of Hans Christian Haig, anti-slavery activist, he fought for the unions, he died in battle, and you take down his statue, there's something going on here beyond what the purported root cause is. And that those that are elected are not stepping up to take care of their citizens, that are not stepping up to protect property, that are not stepping up to protect government-owned property, you wonder how they expect in a a constitutional republic form of government to gain re-election. I just can't imagine. I can't either, Rich, and the both of us have seen much stranger things this year. So, Rich, let's try to put a bow on this as much as as much as we can. Um, this has been the first six months of the beginning of the third decade of this century, and it has been a doozy. There's no question about that. Is there a way forward? And you know, you are an eternal optimist, and I appreciate that, but. Do you have any words of comfort uh, going forward? As we look forward to the back end of 2020, um, I believe it's imperative that we get onto policy and we have so many things to address. Um, healthcare, which benefits all of us, is still unresolved. We still have no meeting of the minds around uh, gun violence and we don't have meeting of the minds around educational opportunities, fair treatment of people. We need to really burrow in on that and insist that those that we elect actually help us resolve those matters. That's what the Common Bridge is about. That's what we hope to do as we move forward through the uh, remainder of this year. I fear it's going to be a really wild ride, but we need to actually keep in mind that this country needs to turn its attentions, its resources, its passions toward addressing those matters. There's much, much more that unites us, uh, whether you're a person on the left pole or the person on the right pole, than there is in what divides us. And the divisions can destroy us. And the compromise and the middle ground 
and the reaching out at least gives us a fighting chance into the future. Um, and that's where we're going to be on the common bridge um, as we roll into the uh, second half of uh, this most incredible year. So thanks, Brian. I appreciate you hosting the Common Bridge again. Thanks a lot, Rich. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.